yes, hello. Our guest today is a positive young man who had a difficult life and spent the majority of ages 13 to 40 in state and federal prison systems. He has overcome substance abuse, a traumatic childhood, and many other personal struggles. I'm very grateful that he would come and talk with me and be so honest about his experiences. He is currently seeking his bachelor's degree through Portland State University in their special program designed to help families who have been or are currently incarcerated. Here's my friend, Jason Conley. I want to go back because I want to figure out what happened and how, because I imagine there's some dark stuff that happened in your life. And I want to hear what happened early on that, that led you to going to prison. Got it. All right. So um, I grew up uh, in California, um, Southern California at first, and then we moved to um, Central California, Fresno. Um, I love my mom to death. I have nothing bad to ever say about her. She's clean today, and she's a phenomenal human being, one of my greatest supporters. And so I don't want to paint this wrong, but, you know, things were things were kind of fucked up growing up. You know, there was a lot of alcohol, there was drugs, you know, a lot of domestic violence, um, just the shit that comes along with um, drugs and alcohol, you know. And um, from very early, uh, I was taken from my mom when I was 13. Um, I was getting in trouble and, like, there were some requirements of her. Uh, by the courts to participate in like drug and alcohol classes and like parenting classes. And so there was like lack of compliance from her. And so, and so I ended up in the juvenile system pretty young. Uh, and, you know, truthfully, um, I think this being in the system that young um, created even more so than whatever I had been dealing with from the chaos at home. Um, I think being in the system from that young of age, because I went from group homes, uh, alternative schools. I never went to high school. They put us in alternative schools because, you know, we we're getting in trouble. And um, and then I went through a, a long-term boys placement, like a 14, because I was getting in trouble at the group homes and I was getting in fights and I was in juvenile detention and stuff like that. And so I went to a long-term placement and then that uh um led to a juvenile prison and um and then I turned into an adult you know and so um what were the things that you guys were doing early on when you were 13 ish were, were you stealing cars like what were you doing no um so I was involved with um you know the a lot of the same things that I was involved with as an adult you know selling drugs fighting um m a lot of like violent things they're just like fighting a lot um, you know, cause I, I, in prison, there's this like, there's this, you know, kind of idea that this is what a man is, right? This is what a person, a dude should be. Right. And then like, you don't take shit from people, right? You don't let nobody, you know, and, um, growing up, I had got a lot of that from my peers before I, I got locked up, you know, it was kind of like, where I was inclining towards already. Um, and I think mostly because I was like, 
I, I was like, I had been running away because of the shit at home. And then like, I was already kind of like rejecting like my family life because it was dysfunctional. And I, so I was running around with guys older than me. I was running around with a lot other people, other kids my age in the same position. And so I started to get involved and not so much the stealing cars, but the selling drugs, the fighting, you know, kind of like that whole like, like, um, street you know uh, mentality stuff right what did it have a lot to do with the neighborhood you lived in or did that not matter well i lived i grew up in california and lived in um you know um central california and so there was like a lot of that there and i started already kind of like to hang out with those types of people and then we moved to chicago i moved to chicago when i was like 12 and when i moved to chicago it was a little bit of a cultural change for me but you know um you know the the gang situations there were a little bit more pronounced just because of maybe where i lived and then so like i started to get hang out with certain groups of people and then home life really like descended at that time for mm-hmm. me and so it became uh running the streets then get, got taken from my mom and then incarcerated and then it just like it started to accelerate so fast like from 12 on Um, that it's really hard to like identify like what was the primary cause I remember being younger and school was still important because I was really good in school uh, up until like this point where I just like stopped uh, where things like just shifted in me I don't know if it was because of my age and I was like maybe getting a little bit older and like you know teenagers kind of already are like become like that anyways yeah if I was an exception to that, but I became a very extreme form of that given the situations at home and then also like the incarcerations. Yeah, because when you're at that age and you lose your your mom and then you're in the system, I imagine people don't really treat you very well, right? You're kind of just an outcast, did did anybody try to support you at that point or were they all just like, fuck this guy? No, there was a lot of fuck this guy. Um, I really, I mean, honestly, the only person I really had in my life at that time was my mom. And my mom and my relationship was extremely fractured. You know, I was a, my mom was a single parent. You know, yeah. I had some stepdads in the house, but my mom did not know what to do with me. Yeah. I, I had, um. Things just accelerated so fast with me and I look back on it and I was just a real, I was a broken child, but the way like it had all these antisocial like characteristics, you know, and like I honestly don't know if there's anything anybody at that point could have done. Um, Maybe. I don't know. But um, I just remember being young and just being like, you know, uh, out of my, feel feel like just like the, the social a uh, part of my life, like the make having the people around me accept me, the guys that I thought were like important, and like it was mostly the guys in like the institutions I was at, and like the guys that were like on the streets that I ran with, like that was all that was important to me. And so I was like just in this like mode where like it was like whatever I needed to do, as tough as I needed to be, as reckless as I needed to be, like that was what I was gonna be, and um, that's what I became over time. It. It like it went from like kind of like me becoming this thing to me being this thing, 
And, um, you know, 13 turned to 14, 14 turned to 15, 15 turned to 16, you know, and then like I was turning into an adult before I knew it, you know. And you were incarcerated that whole time? Yeah, I was let out after I finished. Um, I was in a long term boys placement for 14 months. And because I had a, um, I had been removed from my home uh, by the state, my mom had to like participate in some like um, she had to basically come up and visit me a couple times. And I hadn't seen my mom at all. Um, she had been dealing with her own shit. And she was a young woman to her defense. Uh, she had me young. And so she was a young woman trying to raise, trying to raise a young man. And it's hard to be a human being. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, so, yeah. so I don't say this with, re you know, resentment towards my mother, like I'm still hostile. I mean, like I get it. Right. But at that time there wasn't much support. My mom was pretty much like, you know, uh, she, I think she had just like kind of quit, like, you know, and so, uh, there wasn't a lot of visitation, but I did get out and I got out and I did what I do. I got in a bunch of trouble. I stole her car. I got in a fight. And uh, and then that ultimately sent me uh, to juvenile prison. And then I went to juvenile prison. Okay. So what is it like being in Chicago, 13 to 17 in a juvenile? What did they call it before you went to prison? Yes. Yeah, so it was just a boy's home? Well, okay. So there's depending on what state you live in or what county you're in, they call it different things. In Chicago, the uh, the juvenile detention is called the Audi Home. Um, and then uh, in different places, it's like uh, JDH or, um, you know, the Youth Home, um, you know, some variation of that. Um, but then, like, when you get to juvenile, uh, if you get sentenced as a youngster to, to prison – like in Oregon, I believe it's like McLaren. You go to McLaren here. Yeah. In California, OIA, right? There it's uh, a, a juvenile department of corrections. You're going to St. Charles and then you're going to be just like in the adult system. You go to an intake facility and then you're delegated out to some other facility based on your custody. And so that was my experience. So I, I went to St. Charles. I was in St. Charles for uh, a couple months waiting to be designated. And then I went to Valley View and then I went to Harrisburg. And so I was like in a couple of different juvenile prisons and they're, they're designed and structured just like the adult system. There's, there's uh, structurally no difference between the juvenile system types of prison yards and the adult system. Um, they look identical. If you took the, the, the the youngsters out and put adults in them, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. That seems weird. Shouldn't shouldn't they treat the kids differently than the adults? Oh yeah. Uh, the, so I've been I've been on record. I, you know, I'm a heavy critic of the juvenile system just because I think it's it's the most. Uh, well, first off, we have all these brilliant minds in America, in the world, and all these smart thinkers, and we create all these just brilliant ideas and we can't find one creative mind to come up with a better system of trying to teach kids how to become a human being than locking them in a cell. Yeah. To me, it's not very far removed from like putting them in a dungeon with chains, right? Like it's like you can't expect this to have a favorable outcome for a kid. You just lock them in a cell. You, you basically isolate them uh, you create all of these like new issues from that, right? You take away the, the, the meaningful things from them. You, you punish them 
literally punish them for um, for acting out. Probably they don't even understand why. And um, it just seems to me to be archaic and um, there, you know, but it's something that nobody talks about. Right. It's like no, very few people know people in the juvenile system. So it's like doesn't really affect the community in the, you know what I'm saying, as much as some other issues. Do. Yeah. For some reason. And this sounds shitty to say, but it just sounds like those kids get thrown away. The, you do something that heinous when you're that young and they just give up. They're like, this guy's. This guy's worthless. Let's not even try to do anything for this person. And I'm sure there are some people within the system who are genuinely trying and trying to turn things around. But you have so many things working against you at that point. If you're in basically a prison when you're a teenager, things are not looking good. No, because you, you're – you're developing all these qualities that are going to make you fit for adult prison, right? You're already developing like this whole like – first off, there's just something that happens to somebody and I've experienced this myself. When you take them out of the community and you strip them of everything and you force them to live in a particular type of environment around a bunch of people with a lot of the same issues as you, um, you're basically – you're creating this like um, – you know, this cycle of like people repeat, like everybody's the same way. Everybody talks the same way. Like there's no real therapy there. There's no rehabilitation. It's just more of the same. And as a kid, you know, you'd like to think that we would be more focused on like, okay, most of the kids that come through there have either some type of like situation going on at home. There's a broken home. There's drug use at home, maybe incarceration at home. Like something's wrong. Something's hurting the child. So instead of punishing the child for being hurt and for not knowing how to process that properly, um, you know, why don't we just, why don't we find like more, you know, therapeutic uh, methods of trying to treat these children. I mean, they're, they're children, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and when you're in there, you're hanging out with a bunch of kids who are basically in your same situation. Yeah. And then do you have to, do you have to prove to those other kids that you're tough? And I mean, do you have to do stuff? That you wouldn't normally do because you're in that environment. A hundred percent. So just like in the adult system, you know, um, you know, there's there's this whole like hierarchy in there, right? And then you, as men, like you get in there, and then like you have to find out where you're on this hierarchy. And most of that's established like through fighting, right? And you fight, and you like, you know, you you let others know like this is the type of dude I am. I don't get, you know, what I'm saying like, uh, and then like, um, and everybody's you know, posturing themselves against everybody. And it's just, it's, it's, it's the same type of thing. Like I was saying, it's like, you're basically training the child for adult prison. Cause this is what happened because it's, it's unsustainable in the community, right? Because like, this isn't the type of functional behavior that a human being ought to have. It's very abnormal, right? We shouldn't be, you know, uh, fighting and like, excuse me, we shouldn't be fighting and like, uh, you know, hating other people for this reason or this reason or that reason, you know, it's like creating all of this like hostility towards other people that over time in the community, you're going to, you know, you, you basically, I, you know, you, you, you prove yourself to be, um, 
you know, not able to like exist uh, around other people, you know, and I had this problem coming out of juvenile prison. I got into the community and I like, would fight over things and I was like a hothead and then like I wanted everything my way. And then like I thought like this is how a man is. And, and then like they were like, well, we have a solution to this type of problem. Lock his ass up, hmm. you know. And um, so how long were you out in between? Uh, okay, so I had left juvenile prison. I was 17 and I caught my first case. I was 18. Um, I, I left Chicago. I was living um, in Seattle at the time. I moved to Seattle with my um, pregnant girlfriend at the time. And uh, I moved to Seattle because I knew a guy from Chicago who moved to Seattle. And he was doing good. He moved me out there. And, you know, he's an older guy, a guy that, like, I, you know, basically taught me a lot of unhealthy shit you know yeah. um and got himself together and was like hey you want to come down here and like he lined up a job for me and everything and i went down there and i just i was a i was a problem you know i went down there and i wasn't into any of that and i started doing drugs and like running around and um shortly after i caught a case i caught a robbery and um it was over drugs and i had um basically went, the guy owed me some money so i went to his house with a gun and um and I ended up going to jail for it because it was armed. Yeah, it was armed, you know, and the guy told them that he owed me money for drugs and then I went there with a gun. <laughs> he told the police that. Yeah, I mean, that that ups the ante, right? If there's a weapon involved, doesn't that automatically do something? Yeah, so in the state of Washington, you have a 60-month gun enhancement. Um and then um, on top of the robbery charge, and almost all states are like this. They have these types of like enhancement for weapons and stuff like that, you know. And I was eighteen, um, and um, and so when I, I I got arrested, I went to King County Jail, and um, but I didn't get arrested at the time. I didn't get arrested at his house or anything. I left, and they called the cops on me. I got arrested um, a while later. Did you think it was just going to blow over? I. Knew he called the cops because they went and ra they went and raided. <laughs> no, no, no. It was you know it wasn't smart. I was a kid, you yeah. know. This is what you do when you're a man. This is like this what I had been taught in life and what I had believed, you know, um, you know, uh, growing up amongst those types of people and in the system that this is how you handle this, right? Well, what were you doing at that point? Did you did you have a job or anything? No, I was selling drugs. You're just selling drugs. Yeah, I was selling drugs. Selling drugs. And then did your girlfriend have the baby? Oh, she she um <laughs> so she went back to Chicago. It was too much for her, you know. Yeah. I was drinking a lot. Uh, drinking was a big problem for me. Um and I started to do meth. And um it was too much for her. She was like you know, she had went with me under the idea that I was going to be like trying to get myself together. Right. Like, and, and so I had this friend who was doing great and he was taking me in and he was going to like shepherd me and like teach me how to do well. And I just, I think like I understood that I probably should do those things, but it really wasn't like, I wasn't there yet, you know, yeah. and I got there and started drinking and doing drugs, uh, new drugs. And then like, it was just like more of the same. She left. She went back to Chicago. What, uh, what I should have asked this earlier. What year was this? This is 1998. I was 18 years old. 98. Okay. Tells so you then, how old I am. <laughs> uh, you're just a couple <laughs> years older than me. I'm 38. 42. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, 
So you're, you're in there from 13 to 17. You get out for a year. You move to King County, Seattle yeah. with your pregnant girlfriend. She bails. Did she leave before you did the robbery? Yes. Yeah? Okay. So she left. Some dude owes you money. You go to get the money with the gun, and then it doesn't get reported for a week or whatever, and then they come to arrest you. Oh, it got reported that night. Sorry. You're good. Uh, so it got reported that night. They came to get you. When they picked you up, did you understand how big of a deal that was going to be? Oh, I knew I was in deep shit. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, but I was young. And, you know, the the real force of, um, like, me coming into recovery and getting clean, like, in, you know, all of my uh, revelation that brought me to this point now has has been um, due to this like compound effect of like incarceration over years, right? Decades. And um, at the time, I didn't have all that. And I honestly, if I'm truthful with you, I remember thinking to myself, I'm in deep shit, but I'm gonna go to prison and this is gonna be pretty cool, right? And I remember thinking that because like, you know, um, I think I thought like that had some value, some like credibility. It gave me credibility. I remember being like, I'm here for a robbery with a gun. I was just that's the type of kid I was. And um, that's how shallow <laughs> my my perspectives well, I, were. I then. mean, you spent all of your child or your adolescence in that system. So I get that you you wanted to be respected, even though it was like in this weird way. Yeah. I mean, that was a certain, that was a type of respect to the other people. Like if you went in for bank fraud or something, they would have been like, who's this pussy? Yeah, but, stealing a cat or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you get in there and did they, what happened in the court system? Did they try to get you, did you plead out? I did. Um, so they offered me, it was my first felony ever, um, first time in jail as an adult. Which at that point, like juvenile system stuff doesn't doesn't roll over. Mm. So I'm a first time offender. I ended up pleading to I think it was like eleven months, um, which was not going to be a prison sentence, and they dropped the gun enhancement. Um, and so and so, do you can you explain why they do that as opposed to you trying to say you're not guilty? What does it do? Just lower the sentence? Well, okay. So the idea is this. Um, Trial costs money for them, right? So if you go to trial, it costs a bunch of money. They have to, you know, they have to ask, you know, they have to put together a jury. They have to do like all these things that cost them a tremendous amount of money. It requires a lot of time. Um, and so there's like this uh, give and take, right? Where like you, your sentence on the grid merits this. Um, we're willing to give you this if you spare us having to like go to trial. Yeah. So um, oftentimes, um, you know, it's if you know you're guilty, you know, it's it's a and, you know, you probably wouldn't win a trial. It's it's usually like smart of you to take the deal. And you had a public defender. I had a public defender. And what did that person tell you? She was cool, man. Um, She was like, we could take this to trial and there's a chance people don't show up for court. I mean, because everybody involved was drug users transient people people who might not even be found if they really try to like round up people to tell to testify 
people who might have like, you know, if they were asked questions, might not answer the same way. So there was like, there was like, she was, she was pretty transparent with me. She said, look, we could do this. We could go to trial. There's good odds, but I did it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if people did show up, then. Did did you tell her that? I didn't tell her that. Do they, do they say, don't, do they say, don't tell me? I can't, I don't want to know. They do. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's a weird conflict. If you're defending somebody that you know is guilty. Yeah. Well, well, no, not really, because the question is never true guilt. The question is, what does the court, is the court able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt your guilt? Well, yeah, because it's your word against that guy, right? Yeah. The question is, do they have enough evidence against you to convict you? The question is never if you did it or not. Yeah. Okay. So you decided, though, that was probably not the best way to go. And you said, I'll just take 11 months. 11 months sounded pretty good after looking at the grid, you know. Yeah, because what would it have been? If it they... would have been like I was – my range was like 20-something to 30-something months for the robbery and then a 60-month consecutive gun enhancement. Okay. So you take 11 months. And I took you... 11 months, which it was all ca- – I had to do it in the county. So it wasn't even a prison sentence. So I did, I did like 10 months in King County Jail. Okay. And so that was basically the same as juvie just with – full-grown adults. Just with men, yeah. And what is that situation like? Is that Was that a maximum security place? Well, I was in um, the Kent Regional Justice Center um, for the duration of my court proceedings. And then after I was sentenced for like three months, I was in RJC. And then the remainder of the time, I went to the downtown King County Jail in Seattle, um, which was a different type of facility than RJC was. RJC was brand new. They had just built it. And um, uh, it, and the downtown jail was disgusting. It's old. It's filthy. And yeah, just a different element of people coming into. And so, uh, yeah. What were the majority of the sentences like for people that you were booked with? Um, most of the people that I was once I was sentenced, um. I was, uh, well, okay, so when I was in RJC, most of the people in my pod were fighting cases, serious cases, because I was in a, I was put on a unit with people fighting serious cases. When I was sentenced and I went to the downtown jail, most of the people coming in were like violators. It was different because I, like if I had, I have came in with a case, when you come in with a big case and you're fighting a big case, your custody is a little higher than once you've been sentenced. Once you've been sentenced, you're like eligible to work if you want or like, you know, those sort of things. And so your custody just like, you know, you're getting out fairly soon, even though 11 months isn't soon, soon. But, you know, uh, and so they, they usually lower your custody, put you with other people that are doing less time. Okay. And what is a regular day like when you're, when you're booked and you're just doing doing the stretch well at that particular place um it was like we would just we were in dorms and so we'd wake up and we'd um eat and you know uh work out play cards shoot the shit and then is it difficult to can you smoke cigarettes no no can you get you can get anything you want right you could get anything you want in jail but how do you if you wanted cigarettes, how would you smoke a cigarette and not have anybody know? Well, cigarettes, okay, so so tobacco is a little different. Like there's there's definitely tobacco in prisons. Not as common in the county jails because the people that are sneaking stuffing stuff into the county <laughs> – stuffing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the people that are sneaking stuff into the county jail um, are a little bit more strategic. Like you're going to bring things that are worth more, right? And as yeah, even though everybody would buy tobacco, it's not worth as much as drugs, right? And so if you're going to go that length to bring stuff in, usually it's going to be it's going to be drugs. Or if you're just like getting arrested and you're like, I'm taking this with me, right? It's usually going to be the drugs on you. So what was the main drug that people would sneak in? Every jail is different. So if we're talking about King County Jail at that time, uh, I remember meth. Yeah. It was a lot of meth. And you had to keister it to get it in? Yeah. Most of the time it was people coming in who were getting arrested and they were like, I'm taking this with me. Ah, yep. okay. And so how do you pay for stuff? Uh, just you have money on your books and you just either, you know, you – you know, usually you could just like buy them stuff off store or you could like have somebody else put money on their books, something like that. Yeah. And so how much did you do math when you were in there? Yes. Yeah. And so how much would you buy at a time? Um, so depending on like who it is, right? Like if it's somebody that comes in and um, you know them or like not even know them, but like you're like you're cool with them. Let's say a guy comes in and I hate saying this, but like let's say a white guy comes in, mm -hmm. right? He's going to probably, get, you know, you'll probably get a better deal from him than if another race comes in. And then not because of any other reason than like he's going to like go this way, just like with the guy. It would work the same way with the guy with another race, like the guy with another race. His friends would probably get a better deal than if he was like selling to like another guy from another race. It's just how it is. You yeah. Know? No, I get that. I get that. But very little for a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. To answer your question. Yeah. Way, way, way overpriced compared yeah, to like sure. out here. <laughs> um, hmm. And so when you were in there for 11 months, were you using all the time? No, not all the time. Uh, I remember that time there wasn't a, as much going on in there at that time um did you shoot it or smoke it well it? at that time you know we would snort it yeah yeah because can you get a syringe there i don't remember seeing one and a lot of other places see every place is different yeah you know it's like you can't keister a syringe well <laughs> no but like i you know like i was just in inverness and guys would uh the diabetic guys you know they would they, you know, they would, um, you know, put their syringe in the little container thing or not, and uh, and they would keep it right. Hmm. And the nurse would be like not paying attention, and so now there's a now there's a syringe, and it's a used one, but you know, yeah, to the needy, you know. Well, how how would you get around being fucked up and not having people find out? Oh, because everybody's fucked up and like, you know, who's really paying attention? I mean, who really gives a shit? You know, in the like, you know, in the dorm, the cop may be on the unit. Does he really care? I mean, he's sitting there watching the his phone or, you know, like you could stay away from them. There's not there's not a tremendous amount of oversight. I mean, hmm. unless you're unless it's like three in the morning and you're, you know, dancing on your bed i mean you know there's really no way of that a dude's gonna really be paying that much of attention to you hmm. or unless you're fighting or like argumentative or like in psychosis or something like that you yeah. know what i mean then obviously they'd be like this dude's fucked up get yeah. him out of here yeah but if you're just like doing your thing i mean yeah it seems like that would be 
an impossible scenario to stop it from happening. You, the more you try to keep someone from doing something, if they really want to do it, they'll find a way. Yeah. That's kind of what being a human is. You yeah. really want something, you'll find a way to make it happen. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of guys, especially especially today with like this whole like suboxin thing, right? Um suboxin all of a sudden is this new like harm reduction. It's a, uh, you know, drug f- for opioid abusers and um and, and they they come and give it to you in the jail, right? And like they give it to you and you can take it there and so like there's a lot of like uh you know, there's a lot of it coming in, you know, a lot of people selling theirs and um it's it's a form of heroin. It's a synthetic opioid. And so basically what it is is it it's supposed to be a lot like methadone, like I believe and I don't want to misrepresent this, but I believe it like blocks the opioid receptors and so so if you take it you don't get high and it's an alternative basically what they're doing is they're getting people loaded. Uh the strategy with I think methadone and suboxone was that if we get people loaded, then they don't have to chase getting high, right? They don't have to chase heroin or fentanyl. They're not going to break into our cars. They're not going to steal out of our garage. Needles won't be everywhere. We'll concede the issue. We'll get them loaded. And then at least they're not shooting drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And sharing needles and breaking into places to get high. Um, methadone was was everybody that I knew that was on methadone, it was like a step-down program. So like you're you're supposed to like wean yourself off of opioids with methadone and then they decrease the values of the amount of methadone that you're taking over a period of time. And then the end result was supposed to be you're, you're clean, right? You're, you're no longer taking substances. Um, and I feel like in part like Suboxone, I, I don't know, like I, everybody that I know who's on Suboxone it's not a step down program. It's just like they're just on Suboxone. But there are people who are using Suboxone um, to get off of opioids, right? And so to those, I have no judgment on this issue. I've just, uh, Suboxone has been abused greatly, particularly within the prison systems, mailed in or just sold from the guys that are getting it. Hmm. Um, It's become a big part of like the drugs people use in jail. Yeah, the problem with drug use is that People don't realize you, you reach a point where you don't have control anymore. It's not – I would say that the majority of people on drugs are not doing it because they want to. You reach a point where it's just you have to do it and you're treated like a criminal instead of somebody who has an issue and needs some help. And – I don't know, man. Some of that heavier shit, you 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 just get in too far, and then it's so difficult to get back out. I know, I know a lot of people. I grew up in the Dalles, and there were a number of issues with a number of things, and there still are. I think heroin's more popular there now, but when I was a kid, it was meth. And I have a friend who got hooked on uh, Vicodin, and he would need eight six or eight a day just to function. And he he didn't want to do that every day, but he was like fucking debilitated if he didn't get six or eight Vicodin every day. And he finally eventually kicked it. But a lot of that stuff, man, they, uh, I don't know. It just seems like there should be more focus on on helping people and not just 
kind of pushing them to the side. A hundred percent. I agree. Um, so there's been, there's been a lot of discussion on this, you know, just in the, you know, uh, it's really, it's really nice to see, particularly here in Oregon, um, where they're discussing like, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, decriminalization and stuff like that. Like Oregon, you know, was one of the first to decriminalize marijuana and stuff like that. But to your point though, um, you know, historically what we've done with drug uh, abusers is we've incarcerated them. Yeah. And I think that to anybody who's paying attention, we could at least conclude that's not an effective strategy because all we've done is we've loaded our jails with drug offenders and they get out and they reoffend. Yeah. And so whatever, whatever you are trying to accomplish by locking somebody up, um, it's not accomplished, right? If you're trying to, you know, it's the, the correctional system, right? Where you correct a particular behavior, right? You teach them that's bad, don't do that again, right? But they get out and they do that again. So your strategy's poor. And so, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. so uh, you know, I, I think people are starting to realize that the amount of money that's going into the, you know, Department of Corrections or the Bureau of Prisons or, is like basically being pissed away well the biggest problem is that they're for profit right um some prisons not all prisons some well okay so all prisons are profitable to somebody but not necessarily for profit like economically like we think about like a for-profit prison or a a, a business that's for profit or non-profit right Mm -hmm. um a lot of prisons most prisons uh are either funded by the state or by the federal government like the federal bureau of prisons uh the money comes out of i believe the department of justice right um the money from different states are funded basically by the uh by the you know the the government legislates a certain amount of funding for the department of corrections within that state and then they build prisons Mm -hmm. however there has been um there has been some prisons that have um been built that are for profit basically it's um people who just build because there's population problems yeah and so what they do is they just build these places and they say hey uh we got a place you could we'll staff it and we'll hire our own people and you could house people here and those are for profit for profit prisons i've been in a couple of them i was in Pahrump. i was in california which is um, in nevada it's a federal um holding center uh, they have an airport there in Las Vegas that they house, you know, they, they, they fly people in and then they house people. It's like a holdover facility. There are some people there that are fighting um, Nevada cases, federal cases, but the vast majority of the people there are just on transport going somewhere else. So if you're going from California to, um, you know, Chicago, you're going to go to Pahrump and then you'll fly out of Vegas into another place, right? And so that's a for-profit place. Um, also, I was in California City on on transport through California on extradition from California to Oregon. This is um, when I was in federal prison, and um, and that was a, a private prison. And they have a whole bunch of them. Um, they they they've been built. Okay, so I feel like we gotta we gotta go ahead. You did eleven months in King County. Yeah, and then you got out. And everything was better. Everything was butterflies and rainbows. No. Uh, I got out and, um, you know, I didn't have a place to stay and I was a kid. And um, Yeah. Well, how do they help you in any way when you get released? Or are they just like, go figure it out? 
no, they kicked me out at midnight the day before. So, so my release date was for like Tuesday, right? And I'm just making this up, but it's for Tuesday. So they release you Monday at midnight. So Why they would get, they let somebody <laughs> out at midnight? What are you supposed to do? Well, they get paid for you once you're there past midnight. And they kick you out and they don't have to give you shit. <laughs> that's that's the that's what it is. They they get to fill your bed with somebody else and get paid for you for the day also. So they kick you out at midnight and then you just had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to go. I got released. I, I ended up hanging out that night with a guy that I was uh it, it, who was on my unit, uh, who was in my dorm. And we hung out at his house for a handful of days and then until that ran its course. And then I went out and I basically networked and met people. And, uh, you know, because I wasn't I, I wasn't from there. You know, I hadn't been living there, excuse me, very long. Um, and so I just ran around Seattle and met people and, um, you know, got involved with more drugs and more selling drugs. And uh, I was always able to, like, network really well. I can meet people, people like me, you know, I can meet girls, you know, and like I was able to mingle my way into like a situation that was like not like homeless on the street, sleeping yeah. under a bridge or something like that, you know. And so, I mean, I <laughs> as dysfunctional as it was, you know, I did OK, you know, and um, I, 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 you know, my fallback had become selling drugs to make money. Um, it was convenient for me because I was a drug user. And um, I started shooting drugs at that time in downtown Seattle. I started shooting drugs. I started shooting meth. I started shooting heroin. And um, drug use went from like alcohol and like snorting lines to like shooting drugs. Yeah. And yeah, so um, uh, that lasted for a while. Uh, I left there. I was in and out on violations, probation violations, because I wouldn't report. And then I'd get arrested. I'd do 60 days. And, de you know, I, I was using heroin. So, uh, you know, I would go through the detox and then I'd get, get out and then I'd do the same. And then I'd get arrested and then I'd be in jail for 90 days and then I'd detox and it was horrible. And yeah. Heroin detox is pretty bad, right? It's Just bad. like all the movies show. It's bad. Yeah. Um, you know, to varying degrees, depending on like how much you're using, like there's not just like a detox and then that's it. It's like, you know, um, if you're using more, your detox is worse and longer. If you're using less and it's less severe, but it's still bad, you know. And so um, and, and then, there, you know, everybody's sensitivity to to the to the detox process is probably different. So people experience it different. But in some, it's bad. Well, and they say the reason that most people OD is because they detox and then they go back and try to do the dose they used to do and your body can't handle it right oh yeah they um you know so i have a friend who just got out of oregon state penitentiary and uh we went to pick him up um and um they gave him uh narcan right and, yeah and i i you know the the reason for that is is that the percentage of chances that you would overdose and die coming out of jail is like astronomically higher than anybody else because you haven't been using the way that you know you you were before and so people go back to to do what they did before um i was just at volunteers of america drug treatment and they have on their wall like this whole thing where the people who have passed away and most of those people are people who left treatment and then went and um got Relax. high yeah and and it's just you know uh you just you're you know, your sensitivity to that particular drug isn't the same as it was when you're using. And so, yeah, it, it, it has definitely had a, um, 
um, had an impact on like, you know, the, the jails now release you with, with Narcan and they're like trying to, but yeah, your point's valid. So they, they give it to you because they know you're probably going to go out, get some drugs and maybe OD and the Narcan's the only thing that'll save you. Yeah. Yeah. It's effective. Like people are, I mean, like, you know, uh, it saves lives, legitimately saves lives. Well, I mean, you could just cruise around with a bunch of Narcan and be ready to go. You know, you yeah. know what I mean? Well, like, you know what? There's a lot of people involved in this type of thing. You know, you can, you can get this anywhere now. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, I had a handful of them at my house. People would just bring them to me. Um, they're giving them out everywhere. You know, there's a there's a strong push from, you know, community organizations to get these in the hands of drug users. It doesn't work on um, fentanyl, though, does it? So I, you know what, here, so I, it does. Uh, but I have, like, heard that you have to use, like, more than, like, one. You have to use, like, two or three of them on. Hmm. Uh, fentanyl is a whole nother animal just because of the amount of uh, the opioid that's in the fentanyl. Yeah. So what, how do you administer the Narcan? Um, so they have like nasal ones that you could use and squeeze in there. And then there's huh. another one that you, you give them a shot. The one that you have, I remember the case that I had was like, it was a shot. You'd give them a shot. Uh, but I've seen the nasal ones in people's cars and people's purses and stuff like that. Okay. I'm just wondering like how accurate the Pulp Fiction scene is, you know, and, Stabs her in the heart. Yeah. I think that was adrenaline, though. I don't think that yeah, was Narcan. That was a cocaine overdose. Uh, or was it? No, it was a heroin overdose. She, she yeah, thought it was cocaine. She thought it was cocaine. Yeah, yeah. She was a heroin overdose. Yeah. yeah, I've never seen that or heard of that, but I don't want to say it's not true because I love that movie. Yeah, Tarantino <laughs> just made it up. It was a cool movie. It was a kick ass scene, by the way, too. Yeah, yeah I love that movie. <laughs> All right. So then you're kind of cruising around. And just kind of doing the same stuff. And then you made it back down to California. Is that? No, I ended up, I ended up with this girl and, um, I ended up in, uh, Albany, uh, in, in Oregon. Okay. And, uh, I caught a series of cases. Um, um, I, I caught a case, a robbery case. It was almost identical to the first situation where there was a guy who owed some money and me and a friend of mine, um, we went and collected money on the guy, um, and we had um, firearm and and we took his stuff, and he went and called the cops on us, and uh, we got arrested and went to jail. I was in Lynn County Jail. I think we fought the case for like six months, and he was like, the guy I caught the case with was like, I'm going to trial. Fuck this, and I was like. Uh, cause they were like, look, offering me, they were offering me 90 months. It was a measure 11, right? It was the first time I ever heard the term measure yeah. 11. Yeah. And, uh, they were offering me 90 months and they were telling me that if I didn't take the 90 months, that if I went to trial and lost, they'd give me like 120 cause I got a prior robbery conviction. So I was like, oh shit, maybe I should just take the 90 months. But that seemed like so long to me. That's a long time, man. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a while. And so I was like. I don't know if I want to take that time, right? But and he wanted to go to trial, and um, we ended up taking it to trial. And um, I remember being in the jail and writing letters to people. I mean, just you know, the most ridiculous letters, like basically like coercing, like this is what I want you to say, like say that say that we didn't take his stuff, that he left it there voluntarily, and like 
these letters went out like they didn't read them they're supposed to proofread your mail you know i remember thinking this is really the only chance in hell i gotta beat this case <laughs> and we had people come and like uh show up for court that was like he didn't take his stuff you know and so uh three days of trial man they read jury verdict to us at midnight they called us they took us after they read jury instructions this is like the third day it was like six in the evening and then they go to deliberate and they took us back to the county jail and just put us in a cell uh, in an intake and i remember both of us fell asleep and uh they woke us up it was like 11 50 they're like hey uh wake up they want you back at the courthouse. And I remember looking up at the clock and I was like, man, I wonder if this is good or bad. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're you're thinking about, is this a fast deliberation? Is it a slow? I had. It's probably the same thing you were saying earlier. They had to let you go at midnight so they wouldn't have to pay for another day, right? Well, so they, well, it was just, that was how long it took for the, the jury to deliberate. Oh, okay. And the jury had reached a verdict and they were like, um, and so uh, they, you know, they carried, they, take us back to the courthouse and they bring us in. And uh, I remember I looked over at one of the jurors as a female and uh, she was sitting on the end, which, and I was sitting on the end. We had a, it was called a consolidated trial. So it was like me and my lawyer, him and his lawyer. So, um, you know, we had like two opening statements, two closing arguments. We could cross-examine each witness twice because our every one of our lawyers, it really strategically put us at an advantage. And um, and I remember when I came in, I was I was sitting on the very end, and the lady looked over at me and she winked, and I was like, "Is that good?" <laughs> She's like, "Meet me out front later." <laughs> You're like, "Whoa!" For a positive, uh, for a good, for a good, uh, for a, for a not guilty, I would have. <laughs> but they read, so they they they, you know, the bailiff comes up there. It's like it's just like on TV. They're like, has the jury reached a verdict? And they're like, and the lead jurors like, yes, we have. And then they hand them these papers, which are like on each one of them reads a charge. And I was charged with like robbery in the first degree, robbery in the second degree, um, menacing, and like all these like lower charges too. And uh, they found us. They were like. Uh, you know, the state of Oregon and the state of Oregon versus Jason Connolly to charge robbery in the first degree. We find the defendant not guilty. And I was like, wow, I just beat this case. And then they found me not guilty on all of them except for one. It was like menacing. It was like a misdemeanor. And then I got credit for time served and they let me out. Huh. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I was guilty as shit. So you think that girl really thought you didn't do it? I think that, well... Again, like we were talking about the difference between guilt and um, being guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, yeah. right? It's never a question for the person in the courtroom if he did it or not. The question is, does the court have enough to to convict you of that charge? Mm -hmm. It is the burden. The burden of proof lies on the government and their accusation of you. Yeah. And so if they're going to say you did this shit, right? You did this or you did that. They have to. They have to. They can't just like come in with like some like, eh, we got some rumors that said he did. They have to come in and they have to prove that there is absolute unequivocal evidence against you. Mm -hmm. And if they cannot do that, they have to let you go. Yeah. And so it's not a matter of if you did it or not. They're not going to like ever really know. The question is never that. The question is always like. Can they prove their accusation of you? Well, and to try to get in your mind a little bit, the two times that you did this, you didn't hurt anybody. I'm not saying armed robbery is a good thing, but you didn't hurt the person and you probably thought you were doing 
what you were supposed to do, right? That person owed you money. Did you try to justify it in your mind? Oh, 100%. I thought I was right. And I thought they were they were horrible people for, yeah. for turning me in for this because they basically stole from me. And then like I was expected to do nothing about it. Now, in hindsight, it was all connected to this other chaos, right? And like, you know, whenever you're involved in drug sales, there's always like that element of it, right? Like, what are you going to do if somebody doesn't pay you? Like, you have to... You have to have a protocol for that, right? And you only have that type of protocol if you're like selling drugs. If you're not involved in selling drugs, then you don't have to worry about like what this person, you know, if this person's going to pay you back or not. But but you're right. I at the time I felt I felt justified in that. It fit into my into my um, into my worldview and my values that at that time that that I should be able to do whatever I wanted to be able to get payment. I mean, 100%, I thought I was right. Mm -hmm. And I told everybody that. I complained about it openly. Like, this guy called the cops on me when he burnt me for money, and then yeah, I went he, and got it. Yeah. Should have just paid you. Should have just paid me. <laughs> Could have avoided the whole thing. Uh, okay, so then then what happens when you get out that time? You get- I caught, another, I caught another case right away. Yeah. Uh, for a different, it was a tampering with a witness. Um, I had caught, an, I had caught a, a case. I just got pulled over in a car. I had a gun on me and drugs. And I bailed out of jail and uh, my friend was in the car with me and he had a pistol on him too. And then he got arrested for a gun. And the girl who was driving us uh, told the police that we had guns and drugs on us. They took her out of the car. She told everything. And then, so I'm like, I'm going to get her for telling on me. Right. And so uh, I, you know, without going into the details, I ran into her and like, there was like some conflict. And then like, she told the police that like I had, you know, um, I didn't like beat her up or nothing. Uh, sh I mean, honestly, like, uh, all I, well, <laughs> her car was parked in front of a house and I broke out her window and I like tried to grab her <laughs> yeah. and then she drove off. Right. Yeah. And like, she told the cops that this had happened and, um, and then I, I got arrested mm -hmm. and I got put in jail. And that, that was for a stretch this time. I fought, I took it to trial. Took it to trial again. I just beat this last one in trial. I'm like, I'm going to trial for sure. Yeah. And this is just her word against mine. And I beat it. I beat it in trial. It was a lot different than the first one. That was like one day, there was no witnesses. It was just her word against mine. I didn't even like have to like defend myself. Um, uh, she got caught lying about a handful of things. You know, it was a girl that I knew that I had been involved with and she was trying to deny that she had a husband at the time and her husband was there. And so she got caught lying about a whole bunch of stuff. And even though like the ac the accusations, most of the accusations that she was saying were valid, um, it was like, once you lie um, under test under while, while you're under oath, yeah, uh, it doesn't matter if like 90% of what you're saying is true. If you lie about 10%, it's going to, it's going to like taint all everything else that you said. And I got acquitted on that case quick. Uh, I think the jury deliberated for like an hour and they brought me out and I beat it. And I felt like Superman at the time because I just beat two cases. I was like, this is unbelievable. I, you know, and um, I, it was the same district attorney in Lynn County. And um, immediately after that, he referred me my case to um because i had these gun charges that where i would just i got pulled over and i had a, a weapon on me and i bailed out and i was fighting those alongside of these other ones mm -hmm. and um uh he referred my case to the um 
to the um, U.S. Attorney's Office, the fed to the feds, mm -hmm. and said, "We got this guy. He's running around. He's a problem." And so uh, we don't know what to do with him. So you know, and so that that morphed into my relationship with the federal government, which has consumed most of the rest of my adult life, for the most part. Um, it was a different type of entity than the state. So what happened with that? Well, they watched me for a while. And um, I didn't know any of that had happened. I didn't know there was a conversation. I, it was never crossed my mind that I would end up on an ATF or DEA investigation. Never crossed my mind. They were following you? Well, they started investigating me. Yeah, they started. They started, uh, not, you know, running surveillance on me, figuring out like what I was up to, who I was, what my involvement in the community was. And um, I remember I got arrested in a house. Um, I was in a house. I went to this house, and it was just like a trap house. And um, I went there with this girl that night before, and then we both of us spent the night there. And I woke up in the morning to the cops kicking the door in. And I was like, what the fuck, right? And the cops were kicking the door in and they searched the house and there was a gun. It wasn't, it was, it was mine. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore, but it just was like over there, right? And by a backpack of mine, right? That had drugs in it. Mm -hmm. And so they came in the house and they like searched the house and they find all this stuff and they take me to the police station and they're like, uh, they called my PO. Now my PO at the time, um, was she hated me and she testified at both of my trials against me as a character witness like basically saying he's a horrible person this is the type of stuff that he would do and so um you know my po uh they call my po which this never happens to me and i'm out on bail on gun charges and they call my po my po was like is that your gun it was a shotgun it was a sawed off shotgun they're like is that your gun and i'm like nope and she's like, so if we run fingerprints on it, it's not going to be there? I go, nope. She's like, not your drugs either? I said, nope. She goes, all right, I want you to report at my office tomorrow. I was like, wow. <laughs> Are they not going to take me to jail for this? And so uh, I report to her office the next day. And uh, there was a DEA and an ATF agent <laughs> followed me into the office Damn. to interrogate me. Yeah, they wanted to, they basically, that's how I found out that the feds had be, became involved in my case. My PO had me meet there. And then they, they traditional good cop, bad cop me. One's like, you're going to federal prison your whole life. And the other's like, it doesn't have to be like this, Jason. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like <laughs> And I'm like, I'm going to jail for sure. They're taking me to jail. There's no question about this. And I'm like, I want a lawyer. And they're like, if you don't cooperate, you're going to prison for your whole life. And I'm like, I want a lawyer. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm fucked. <laughs> I was like shook. I was a kid still. I was like 22. Fuck, all that happened by the time you were 22. Yeah, I was like 22. Jesus Christ. So did they take you? They let me go. They said, you have until next week to think about this. And I was like, they're going to let me walk out of here. And when they let me walk out, I went back to California. So you're like, I need to get out of Oregon. Yeah. I was like, I'm out of here. Because they're going to just arrest me. I'm not going to cooperate. They're going to arrest me. And... You could leave the state? No, of course oh. not. I was supposed to report the next week. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> I was just doing that. And this was around the time my mom got clean. So my mom had gotten clean. And I remember talking to her on the phone. And my mom's, my relationship had always been fractured. Yeah. 
And um, my mom had gotten clean and she became a Christian. And so she got on this like Jesus thing. And then like, she was like not using drugs. And I remember talking to her and I was like, what's her angle? Cause I had never like, you know, it wasn't my mom. And um, she wanted to see me. And so I ended up leaving there and with this girl that I had met who was pregnant at the time. And um, uh, a girl I met in Oregon and um, I went and see my mom and she was clean. And so, um, yeah. How many times had you seen your mom since you were a kid? Since when I first got arrested, like back in the like days. Like 13, yeah. Yeah, like not many. I remember she, she came up to the placement, the boys, um, long-term boys placement. She came up a couple times. And I remember she came and visited me in juvenile prison one time. And it was like the worst timing ever. I had gotten to a fight like a day or two before that. And I was in the hole mm-hmm. and I had a huge black eye. And uh, my mom shows up and she was like, this is what you're up to in here. She was like, it's just like judgmental. And it was, the conversation went really bad. And then I think she walked out of there and like, it was not good. So, so I mean, like, honestly, like not that many times, Yeah, less than 10. Yeah. Well, what happened when you got down in California then? So you, you go and see your mom, she's all cleaned up Yeah, and kind of rubbing you the wrong way because you hadn't seen her like that before not at all man yeah. things were cool like i was like my mom was like my mom and my stepdad got clean together and um you know they used together and they were like if we want you know we love each other if we want this to work we got to quit doing drugs and they did that's pretty cool it's dope they're still together that's cool yeah nice so what happened next i got arrested in ventura um i went to ventura and ran around and you know, I had a bunch of money with me, but then that goes fast. <laughs> How'd you get money from oh, selling? selling drugs? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I went down there, and then uh, money started to dry up, and then um, uh, I started getting involved in selling drugs there, and I got arrested selling drugs. And they were like, "You've got federal warrants." I was like, "I know." <laughs> this whole time, did you did you ever did you ever like get some crazy thought where you're like, "I'm gonna." I'm going to become a lawyer and wear khakis every day. Like, did you ever think about going a different route? Yeah. Did you ever envision yourself stopping and just like doing something completely different? You know, I have had that thought my whole life. The problem was, is that the type of like overhaul of values and like personality that would be required to me was like unobtainable. Yeah. It was like trying to like put the square, the circle in the square hole where it was like, I should be a square, right? But I'm a fucking circle and like I just can't like get myself to be there. But you you had to have known at any point there was no end game. It was either you were going to die or you were going to go to prison. I think like when I was young, like that was part of like my whole like, like I'm willing to follow this to the end thing, right? And like I kind of like it becomes like you're like, you know, for guys that like do a lot of time and guys that run the streets like that, like that's that's kind of like how we look at it like i'm probably going back to prison i'm probably going to do this like you know and it's like it becomes kind of like a, um like a i don't know we kind of look at it like honorable almost like mm-hmm. it and it sounds stupid for me to say this to you like i sit here and hear myself say it and i'm like what the fuck am i no i get it i it, know it what you're become, saying but it because like cuz what what you know um you're a type of person that like um is just kind of cut a little differently than everybody. Yeah. 
And so um, you take on like that whole like identity and then it becomes like who you are, right? And um, Well, you're probably very attracted to risk too, I would imagine. Because all that shit is extremely risky. And there's a personality, fucking cliff jump or base jumpers and people that jump out of airplanes. Yeah. Like there's a certain amount of risk involved with that. And that's probably like a core part of your personality. Yeah. It fit me pretty well. I think I have like a lot of qualities naturally. Like I'm a pretty like, like I'm like a, like I'm pretty driven. I'm pretty like committed. Like when I like get behind things, like I feel intensely, like I could really like, like, you know what I'm saying? So, um, it's just that I've directed those things towards like, um, towards like a worldview and towards like a, a, an identity type that has just, you know, really sucked the life out of me, Mm -hmm. really like crushed me over time. Um, but, um, I find that I still try to lean into those same qualities today. Like I, I, I haven't like abandoned that type of like level of commitment. I learned how to be committed to some shit because you got to be committed. <laughs> you got to be committed to follow a long sentence like this and get out and still be willing to do it again. I mean, you gotta be, you gotta be in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So in Ventura, I get arrested. You get arrested. Selling drugs. And you got. Warrants in Oregon. And so is that when they're like, this dude's done? Oh, yeah. I was extradited. I was extradited um, uh, back to Oregon to uh, on a federal charge, federal gun charges. Federal gun charges and federal drug charges. Which is more serious. Oh, yeah. When you say federal. Well, severity based off of the type of time that you're going to get. Because then you're being charged by the federal government instead of the state government? Oh, yeah. The indictment reads the United States of America versus Jason Conley. Like the whole fucking country is against me. <laughs> That's pretty hardcore, <laughs> Not dude. the state of Oregon or the state of California or the state of Washington. It's like the, the whole, whole country. Co- yeah, they've rallied against you. <laughs> so did you try to fight that one? Hell no. <laughs> no, you don't. So you, okay. So first off. There's a there's a difference. I mean, you, you there's there's the federal government is a completely different entity than than local governments. They investigate differently. Their resources are different. The type of like procedures that they have are different. And so by the time you get indicted by the federal government, oh, believe you me, they wrapped your case up. They have enough against you. It's not like the state where they charge you and then they try to gather the uh, evidence against mm. you. They've already done all that. So by the time I got arrested, they had already ran their investigations on me. Mm. They had already knew everything that they needed to know. They already had their informants. They already had all of that. And then they dropped the indictment on you. And at that point, you're just like, you're there to be arrested. And if you could like cross your fingers and hope that it doesn't get too bad. And so at that point, did you know you were fucked? Oh, I knew I was fucked big time. As soon as I got in there and I started, I was on extradition through California. I went, I went to L.A. County Jail and then L.A. MDC. And I was extradited through San Bernardino and then flown out of there. And every I was around federal dudes. Most of the people that I was with in there were federal dudes either fighting charges um, or – um, you know, being on extradition or going to another prison, right? And so, and they're all like, what are you here for? And I'm like, guns and drugs. They're like, oh, you're fucked. 
And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, pro- <laughs> probably 10, 15 years. I'm like, oh, my God, dude, this is like, mm. this is bad. Right. And so um, this I, is when you were in Vegas at the the one that starts with the P. No, yeah. Prump. No, they hadn't built Prump yet. But this is this was uh, this was like 2003. And so at the time, what they did was they they if you were on extradition, any part of the state, they sent you to Oklahoma and then Oklahoma there's a federal transit center. It's a pretty weird place. Like it's a big federal hub. And like the plane pulls right up to it and the arm just comes out. And they just let the inmates out. <laughs> yeah, it's like. Like at an airport, like the arm Whoa. comes out, links to the plane, and they offload you right there. They're not taking any risks. No. Huh. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it was the first time I've ever been to Oklahoma. Uh, we're in Oklahoma now. <laughs> and so that's not where you ended up. Though. No, they, this was just to get me to Oregon, you know. They sent you to Oklahoma and then you had to come back to Oregon. Yeah, from California. So what was the place you ended up in, in Oregon? So I ended up in Lane County Jail because I was indicted out of the Southern District because all but the way that the feds divide Oregon is like they just basically have a line that like goes across the state and like there's the Southern District of Oregon and the Northern District of Oregon. Okay. So if you commit a crime, let's say in like Albany or Eugene, it's considered the Southern District of Oregon. So you're you're going to be the jurisdiction out of that district is out of Eugene. So you'll be housed in Eugene, you know, all that, right? And so it's out of the federal courthouse in Eugene. Anything north of there, like Salem, Portland, it's all in the Northern District of Oregon out of Portland. And so the federal courthouses kind of divide the state like that. But when you say Lane County Jail, that doesn't sound like prison. No. So it wasn't prison. I was fighting the case. So, uh, but so what the feds do is because there's like, they have the Sheridan federal detention center, right? Which is uh, a county jail for federal inmates. But what mostly they do is they rent beds from local counties and they say, Hey, uh, like, like Inverness, right? Like there's a bunch of federal dudes over there. Mm -hmm. Um, they're fighting federal cases. And so the feds just basically pay for their bed space and, um, you know, the same is out of Lane County Jail. You know, most of the people in Lane County Jail when I was there were federal. Uh, the feds are just paying for the beds. Gotcha. And say, hey, we need somewhere to put our guys. Can we house them in the county jail? Now, today now, I don't think Lane County holds them. I think they hold them at the Springfield City Jail, which is horrible. And um, and those guys are in there for, you know, fighting a fed. Fed cases take years and years to, yeah. to arbitrate. So what was your sentence? Well, I was sentenced to uh, sentenced to ninety two months, right? And then um, I had two years uh, in violation. So how they do this is the federal government when they sentence you is they sentence you to a term of imprisonment and a term of supervision. And built into your term of supervision is a statute for how much incarceration time they could give you on your on your violations, right? The most they could give you. So so they give you. A sentence, and then they give you a sentence as part of your violations that they could do. So I ended up doing like nine and a half years total. Uh, Consecutively. Well, I got out and I violated and they sent me back for two years on my violation. Yeah. So I did my my 92 months and then I went and did another 24 months on my, um, on my violations. So what is that like when you know like day – Day 20, when you know you've got 89 months to go or 91 months to go, what is that? Just seems like it'd be so defeating. Like you just know that's where you're going to be for seven years. 
Yeah, it was, um, you know, you nailed it. It's, it feels defeating. Um, and, you know, I, when I think about it, there was a lot of different feelings that I felt, you know, of course I was young and like, I was like, well, I'm in the feds now. And like, there's this like cool thing there until you get to, so I was sentenced to, um, I was sent to my first prison sentence. I went to our, or my first prison that I was designated to was USP Leavenworth in Kansas. Um, cause they just send you wherever. And I was high custody because I had been getting in trouble and um and plus i had a long sentence and i was young and like hit all these like criterias for uh for your custody going up and so um i went to usp leavenworth and and you know the detention center at sheridan and the county jail and all that any county jail it doesn't prepare you for what that's like um um it was a you know, you get there, like, there's a lot of violence there. There's a lot of problems there. There's a lot of drugs there, um, you know. And so it's just a different – it was a different type of place. It, you know, I had been on the streets and running around, and I was, like, pretty into, like, everything. And, like uh, – but that, even for me, um, and I had grown up in the system, um, you know, it's a scary place. And you have to, like, adapt really fast. Yeah, I mean, were you just worried you're going to get beat up all well, the time or uh so not all the time. So how it typically works is you show up there and then so I'm from California. I grew up in California, and so I'm from California. So they divide by the states. And so oh, like if you showed up there, they'd be like, "Hey, Cody, what's up, man? You're from Oregon? Okay, here are the Oregon guys." Right? Huh. And then the Oregon Ooh, guys, you're saying that the the inmates decide that, or the people above? No, do? this is how it works. Like when you get there with the inmates. Okay. So the inmates, so you you get there and you get your pillow and your bedroll or whatever, uh, and then they're like, uh, as soon as you get there, somebody's going to come up to you and be like, "Where are you from?" And you're going to be like, "Portland" or whatever, right? And then they'd be like, "Okay," and they go get a couple of Oregon guys and they come talk to you and they want to know what you're there for. They want to check your paperwork out. And they want to know, like, they're going to, like, kind of, like, get a read on you. Yeah, because if you show up as, like, a, a child peta... They won't send you there. Usually what they're trying to figure out is if you cooperated in your case. Okay. They want to look and see if you... If, they, they want to, they want if to, you're a rat. They want to know if you're a rat. Okay. Because they don't put sex offenders on those types of yards. It was a high-security yard. They have a place where they send sex offenders. So the question isn't so much... Although they do want to know if you've committed sex offense, it will tell if you've committed sex offenses in your past. But um, you're, uh, they have a pre-sentencing report that they give to everybody uh, prior to your sentencing. And it's like pretty thorough. It talks about everything that you've done, been in trouble with, every arrest you've had, including the one that you're on currently. And it would also list if you cooperated. Okay. So that's the main concern when you get there. They want to find out if you're a rat. They want to know if you're and no good. And what if you're a rat? Oh, well, if you're a rat, probably you're not going to make it that far because they'll have told somebody because they tell you when you go in through processing, listen, if you've cooperated, I wouldn't go out on the yard. The the, the corrections officers will tell you that. And they're usually like, I showed up to Leavenworth with probably about 10, 15 dudes and a whole bunch of them didn't come out on the yard. Uh, they went to the hole. And so they, you know, because they couldn't, they couldn't program on the yard. And so you go there and they're going to check you over. And then even once then you go, well, let's say you didn't cooperate. Let's just say you like, you know, and then, then, then they want to know like, 
are you a tough guy, right? Like, are you the type of dude who's going to be, like, useful if, like, there's problems here and, like, you know, they want to know if you're, like, you know what I mean? If you're going to – they just want to know what type of guy you are. And yeah. that's not discovered by reading your paperwork or, like, in a five-minute assessment of you. That's going to be, like, over the next couple of days, over the next week, they're going to get a feel of, like, what type of guy you are. And there's a lot of people who are decent people who just weren't tough guys and then they just, like – chew them up and eat them out you know yeah man well and then you also get separated by race yeah you're separated by race and then within your race you're separated by your cars your cars which is like your state so the california car or the oregon car or the washington gotcha. car that's just the lingo they use right that's how they the terminology that they use in the federal system yeah but is it weird if you become friends with somebody from a different race like is that frowned upon or something so that is always going to be determined by the place that you're at, the prison that you're at. Like um, in the federal prison and what they call the USPs, the United States Penitentiary, which are high security facilities, you're just not going to fraternize that much with other races. It is it is um, frowned upon. And, um, and you're going to find that a lot of the other races don't want to talk to you. Um, and that, that is, uh, that there's this like built in like hostility just because of the type of like problems that are on the yard and the types of things that have happened in the past. Do you, do you think it's legit racism? Like people hate other people cause no, you think it's just, you have to do it or you get yes. fucked up. Yeah. So I say this from personal experience. Like I, you know, I've lived in cities my whole life. I lived in Chicago. I had black friends, Mexican friends. Like I've always like moved amongst like guys from the inner city and they've always been in my social groups, right? And like they've always been the type of guys that I run around with on the streets, you know. Um, and then you get to this like you get to the penitentiary and the, the federal penitentiary, and there's this like idea that like now you can't like nobody that doesn't look like you, and like even if you don't like see impressionable people, young people like myself at the time, you know, and other guys, they'll like they'll buy into this whole thing because they want to be accepted. And they, they don't want to be – they don't want to have any problems with anybody. And so they take on the um, the image, right? And then you'll – and then it's kind of like reinforced by the fact that like uh, – like I was – when I first got there, I got a job as a tutor, right? Because I had my GD and not many people had their GD. And so um, I get a job as a tutor and like right away like <clears throat> in the classroom like the white guys will ask you questions. The the black guys or the Mexicans, they don't care for you and they don't mm -hmm. want to talk to you. And so it's like it's reinforced by this like kind of like hostility that comes from other people. And then you're like, you know, you, and, then, and then fights happen. And then it's always like I'm in danger because these people. But like so it's like <clears throat> it's like this secular type of like mob mentality that's like what's creating the mob mentality is it the mob or is it like you know what i'm saying it's like it's hard to really like all i know is that it's all bullshit right it's all bullshit um uh, most of most of the people in those situations are just trying to get through and then like um and then whatever like harsh feelings i think people develop usually one towards another um is just uh aggravated by the environment and if you take those people out of their environment and you ask them questions honestly freely without judgment without like persecution from their peers uh i think you'll find that they don't really believe in a lot of the things that they espouse while they're there yeah yeah it's more like you're you're confined to 
acting a certain way so you don't get murdered or something, yeah. right? Yeah. So what what was the daily concern for you? You you get up, you go eat, you work out and everything. Were you were you in a constant state of fear that somebody was going to try to kill you? Um so not kill you like so honestly most of the problems that i found that happened uh uh within like you know like i like i'm from california so i so uh i affiliated myself with the california white boys right your biggest danger at that point is the california white boys like yeah, it's not the other races. Hmm. It's like other white dudes. Like if somebody doesn't like you, it's a lot of the popularity contests. And so there's a small margin of error. And I've seen guys show up on the yard that were cool, that really like that, that. And these guys weren't maybe tough guys. And so they, they bullied them. They wanted money from them. And so like, you know, if they didn't like comply with like every wish that this guy said that like if he wasn't buying drugs or getting them high or whatever, then this guy decides he doesn't like them. Now this guy's gone. Right. And then they're, they're fucking this dude up pretty bad and like, and for nothing, right. for nothing. And so, you know, um, there's always like this margin of error that's real like thin and you know that, right. So you like, you just have to learn how to live very circumspect. Like you have to learn how to live in there. And a lot of guys don't, and they don't make it. Um, so what happens when you don't make it? Well, they just beat you up and get you gone, maybe stab you, get you the, out of there. They'll send you out if too many problems arise with one individual? Yeah, if like somebody's decided that they don't, they, like if he's had a gambling problem or like, you know, he's got himself in debt with people or other races or stuff like this. And I've seen this happen a million times. Or if he just talks too much and he's yeah. like overly opinionated about stuff and gets himself... <laughs> in a wreck with certain people that other people like more than him, he's gone. Um, I, I've just, I've seen it a lot and not just with like one race, with all the races, um, there's always problems and drugs, drugs fuel these like dra dramas, you know, the, the drama and these like chaotic situations where like people owe money and now people are involved and now these people are pissed and this is how to happen. And, and then it's just like, you know, it's constant. It's constant. Hmm. And it's more so in those, like, I was at Leavenworth. I was in USP Lompoc. And I was in USP Atwater. And in all those places by far, it was far worse than any of the other prisons. Like, I've been in a state prison here in Oregon. It wasn't that bad. Like, in Oregon, I there's dudes. You could talk to anybody of any race. And that's cool. It should be how it is. Mm -hmm. You you know, um, you could be friendly with anybody. You could work out on the, you know, if, if 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 I'm black and you're white and like there's one white pile, we could work out together. It's not that doesn't happen there at uh, Leavenworth. No, that would not happen. Yeah, no, because then people are going to jam you about it. They might give you a warning, tell you never to do it again. You're supposed to act like such and such. Huh. Well, and what's the response from the correctional officers? Where they? Were they all assholes? Were they mean? Were they cool? Were they just not talk to you? What was all that like? It was mostly not talk to you. Um, there are some cops that work the unit that are kind of abrasive, but for the most part, they stay out of the way. They want to go home. Um, and yeah. so they they just kind of let you do your thing. We drank a lot. And so- uh, Alcohol or you would make stuff? Oh, well, we would make stuff. Yeah? What yeah. would you make? Oh, well, uh, there's always like the guys that are like the brewers, right? And they like, <laughs> they would like, 
Yeah, and they would like they were really good. They would make everything. Like uh, I remember drinking uh, um, like green alcohol on St. Patty's Day. <laughs> like like they were pretty creative, man. And they would like they would yeah they would like make all these things. There was so much wine being made. The the thing that you see the most is is the wine, right? You just need grapes and thyme, right? Well, you tomato paste and sugar, you know, and yeast. Yeah. Hmm. And and it's like done in like two days, three days, and yeah, Damn, you can drink it that. in two days. You might want to wait three, but <laughs> <laughs> you can do. Wow! <laughs> and there's like, and they just there's a cycle of them. So one's kicking today, another will kick tomorrow, another will kick that day, and so it's like, you know, uh, but you got to be careful, man. The drinking will get you in wrecks. Yeah, <laughs> drinking will get you in trouble. What if they came in and they saw you got a a. a bucket full of tomato paste when they know what's up yeah they wouldn't care so they would do room searches occasionally it was random by like cell and they would always give you a heads up they'd say hey uh your cell's up for uh cell search today so we'll hit you tonight make sure you get everything out of there the only thing they're really looking for is knives they don't care about the alcohol if you're super drunk, they'll just tell your your friends to put you in the cell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get them in the cell, or we're, they have a drunk tank. They go put hmm. you in the drunk tank and hmm. make you lay on some concrete for a while and regret being too obnoxious, you know. And what about the hole? You ever go in the hole? Yeah, yeah. For how long? You know, in the feds, it's not that long. Um, I went to the hole for fighting an OSP, and they gave me 120 days. I was like, oh my god, that's so long. Uh, because you could, <laughs> I've seen dudes, I, you know, gut people and like get like 60 days and like, it's I like thought, nothing. I thought a week was like the ultimate. You're 120 days. Oh, I got 120 days. For, I got 120 days for a fight. I've seen dudes get, uh, six months, 180 days. And then, uh, then have to go like do like IMU time. And then like, that's like long-term IMU here in Oregon is like ridiculous. I, I think they've... I think they've gotten rid of long-term IMU, so they've like cut it down to six. But but Oregon gives you so much hold time; it's uh, like unbelievable how much hold time they could give you. That's here like in the worst thing you can do to a human. Oh, it's, right? it's it's insane. It's it's literally insane. Like over time, it has horrible effects on your mental health. Yeah, without question. But it's punitive. It's just, it's no different. The the um the disciplinary process in the Department of Corrections or the Bureau of Prisons reflects identically the values of the criminal justice system. They're just punishing you. This is a punishment for what you've done. Take that. And um, it gives no account to the produ- how productive it is, how harmful it may be to you over time. None of that is taken into consideration. It's not meant to uh, as restorative, like to actually like fix anything. Mm-hmm. It's just meant like we're just going to spank you really fucking hard. Well, yeah, because are you in a black box and they just give you food a couple times a day? Well, it's just a cell. It's just a cell. Most most of the holes are the same. It's just a cell. But you get you no human, no human interaction. You might have a celly. Um, you have a celly, um, and then so you'll have your celly, which could be good or bad depending yeah, on right? how you feel about them because yeah. you guys ain't coming out. Uh, you do get recreation for like an hour uh, where basically they just like let you come out and usually like a pull-up bar or dip station. And you come out and like walk Dude. in like a little – it's like half – like maybe a third of this room right here. Dude. And you're just basically like a 
in a cage just walking around for an hour and you're just like, put me back in my room. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done working out. Put me back. Oh man, I can't even imagine. Seven years, dude. And then you got out and then you went back for two. I did two more, yeah. When did you decide that you wanted to turn it around? Not then. Um, I got out. (laughs) Not then. (laughs) Um, You know, things haven't come easy for me. So I got out and um, I ended up, uh, after I terminated my supervision, they gave me two years on my violation. Um, uh, I was in Portland. I came here and I came up here, uh, involved with some guys and some, um, selling drugs, man. And, uh, and then I ended up on another, uh, drug charge here in the state of Oregon. Um, I got arrested in Portland and then I was out on bail and got arrested again for delivery of a controlled substance. And they gave me 80 months and 80 months and they ran them concurrent. And so I had to go back to prison for another six yeah so i did like five years and like nine months or something like that yeah yeah and so it was it was interesting you know because i had never been in state prison before i had only been in federal prison and so to see the contrast between the two of them there is like um there's a lot of difference between the two types of prisons and you know um uh, some are like good differences some are bad uh, I could list a, a handful of, you know, differences that, you know, um, you know, being in federal prison exposed me to people from all over the country. And I'm going to tell you this, even though the people in federal prisons that I was in uh, seemed to be like more prone towards like violence and towards like that sort of thing. Some of the smartest people I've ever met in my whole life I met in federal prison. Hmm. Uh, these are guys that were like not like small time offenders. They were like a lot of them were like gang leaders had been involved in like high level drug sales. If you get over 20 years, you're going to a federal penitentiary to a USP. A lot of these guys were really savvy. Uh, they weren't just like your run of the mill. Like I broke into your car or I stole your car or I'm like hacking your like credit card number and like buying shit. These dudes were like, they were doing serious things. Mm-hmm. And so you meet some of these guys, and some of these guys are never getting out. And these guys have so much time. Well, and they, they still run things from inside, don't they? In some some scenarios. Well, you know, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of like it's just like uh, the the hierarchy within the organizations are basically established by like who's like been around longer, or like you know, you know, it's decided differently amongst different organizations. But yeah, these guys, these guys were big time, you know, and so. Uh, they they run shit for sure within their own jail and oftentimes within multiple prisons. Uh, and so uh, it's just a different element of people. You know, in the state prison, you get a lot of these guys that were like homeless on the streets mm-hmm. and like they just like kept like doing dumb shit. They broke some windows out, you know, and now they're going to prison. Right. Yeah. And so you meet a lot of people like that. And, you know, and uh, having been in the federal system, going to the state system. And they're like, but the upside to that is like, it's a lot chiller, you know, like I never felt in danger for my life at OSP. You did in Leavenworth, but not at OSP. Yeah. Because if people decide they don't want you there, like they'll just fuck you up really bad. Yeah. And then like, and you don't really know when that's like, you know, you're, 
you know, you just like, and sometimes there's conflict. Like I had conflict with, with, with dudes there sometimes, you know, and then you always wonder in the back of your head, like, where's this going? You know, and like, yeah. even like things like that ha might have happened. Like, let's say you're like, you know what? I don't like Jason. And then I'm like, you know, I don't like Cody. And then like, we go and fight it out in the cell. Like, hopefully that's just, just it. Right. But then like, you never really know, um, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, at OSP, it was completely different, right? They don't have like the organization, like you've seen, like in, in the feds, as soon as you get there, like you belong to somebody, right? Like, oh, you, where are you from? What state are you from? Oh, you're from, Cody, you're from Oregon? Okay, now you're an Oregon guy. Now all these Oregon guys got all these expectations of you and you got to comply. Otherwise, nobody's going to look out for you except, no, I mean, nobody's going to look out for mm -hmm. you. The only guys really looking out for you, making sure nobody really, really presses you is the Oregon guys. And so if the Oregon guys don't like you, you got to go. Yeah. And so in, in the state, it's a lot different, right? It's like... In the state, like, if you get there, like, unless you're a gang member, like, one of these local Oregon gang members, like, you know, um, like, Brood or, like, EK or whatever, like, if you're just an independent dude who goes in you just be like, I don't really run with nobody, like, you could just do your time. And that's it. And there's really no, like, burden on you to be an asshole or to, to hate people or to, like to do anything like i mean like, you could get yourself running with some guys that might think they're tough and then like if you let somebody else talk to you they might be like you need to go kick that guy's ass but that's self-inflicted you could choose not to you know yeah it seems like if you were too nice to everybody somebody would be upset about that too they'd be like well they just ostracize you from the cool crowd yeah. right like you're just like okay we don't mess with that guy because like he's not cool like us like that's that's how it works in the state prison. Like, are you a cool guy or are you not a cool guy? Like yeah. a good dude or not a good dude. That's the term they use here in Oregon. It's something that I've heard them say a lot here. I've never heard them say anywhere else. <laughs> are you a good dude? I don't know. You tell me. Who are you asking? Yeah. My son's mom? No. <laughs> <laughs> she hates everybody. <laughs> Damn. Okay, so you're in OSP, and then is that how you got involved with PSU and yes. doing all that? Well, I got involved with Chemeketa, and God bless Oregon State Penitentiary for that. Because uh, So it's interesting how it happened because when I got arrested, I was like, I'm going to college, right? Like I'm going to do something like I'm not just going to waste this time because I was like – this is uh, 2014, and so, like, you know, I'm, like, 34. I'm, like, you know, I just – well, 2015, excuse me, I got sentenced. So I'm 35, and I'm, like, you know, I'm not, like, a kid no more, and I need to, like, make this one my last one. And so uh, I get involved, and I – okay, so uh, I started to just do drugs and run amok, right? Like, I got to OSP – I had a bunch of money and like I was just like doing more drugs and just like more useless shit, right? And so it's more of the same s story. I got in some trouble, I was drinking a lot, got in some fights and went to went to the hole. And how it works here in Oregon, and this is contrasted from the state too, is like they have this level system here in Oregon, right? To where like if you have like clear conduct, like basically haven't been in trouble then you get like moved up these levels, right? And depending on your level, it's like one, two, or three, right? So if you're 
um, if, uh, if you haven't been in trouble for a while, then you get like all these like privileges. Right. And so if you're level three, then you could like be out on all the yards and like, you could like do all this extra shit and including participate in programs and whatnot. But if you're level one, they give you an orange tag. So it's not even the same, your ID is not even the same color as everybody else's and you got to wear it everywhere. And so they're like, look, this dude's like, <laughs> this is not a good guy, not a good guy. <laughs> and so, um, I had just got out of the hole. I had gotten drunk and then um, gotten to a fight in the kitchen, a meaningless fight. And I went to the hole for it and uh, I got out and I was like, by the time I got out of the hole, I was just doing the math on it. I'm like, dude, I can't even, I had like two and a half years left. I can't get the clear conduct and then still be able to participate in any, like anything. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I couldn't even get like like I thought. Well, okay, I can't even get into like the welders program or nothing because you got to have like you got to be level three. Like everything you got to like you got to be like, you know, clear conduct for eighteen months. I have two and a half years left. By the time I get the eighteen months, even if I like stay out of trouble, I won't have enough time to complete any program. Yeah. So I like basically fuck my time off. I'm like I did this again, right? And so I remember. They put a newsletter out, and it's called the Walled Street Journal. It's a play on words, right? <laughs> the Walled Street. Yeah. It's pretty creative, I thought. <laughs> and it's like a newsletter that goes out every week at OSP. And they just come by and bring it to your cell and shit, right? And the Lifers Club uh, prints it. So, uh, you know, I'm reading it, and it was like, Chemeketa is doing this, like, college inside program. And I heard that they had it, but they had only ran it for, like, a couple – rounds and it was a pilot program sponsored by uh the second chance act right where the second chance act uh allowed for um state inmates or i don't know maybe federal i don't know i know for sure state inmates to be able to receive fafsa which prior to that was not allowed if you're in custody incarcerated you can't receive fafsa hmm. so this had allowed for guys to receive fafsa and so um, it was a pilot program. They they brought in like a handful of uh, qualified inmates to participate in this college program. And basically what they did was they ran it out of the education dorm or excuse me, the education um, uh, uh, where education was. Okay. And so uh, it was upstairs. And so you would go up there up to education and they had like all these classrooms and what. And so. Uh, they bring you in and then you fill out this like, you know, you do the application for Chemeketa and then you fill out your FAFSA. And then what happens is, is that they post these classes like they, you know, every semester comes prior to the semester starting. They, they got like five classes available and like it's for an AAOT, right? For a transfer degree, right? So Associates of Arts, uh, Oregon Transfer gotcha. Degree. So the idea is that you're going to take this Oregon Transfer Degree and then when you get out, you'll you'll go resume your, your schooling at a university. And so they basically they get, get you all your prerequisites out of the way. And so um, they had ran this through a couple times. I think like every six months or something, a new cohort started. I know that they hadn't ran that many. When they put it out, I was like, look at it. It was like, got to be level three, 18 months, clear conduct. And you got to have two and a half years left. And I was like starting to dwindle under that. I'm like, I don't have any requirements met for this. None. So I go up there, but they're doing this bridge to college writing class. And it was like designed to where if you're level one, an orange tag, you could take it. And what they wanted to do is they used it as like a screening process to try to like 
filter out people who maybe don't have the aptitude to be able to participate in a college class. It's a way of like weeding you out without like being mean. Mm -hmm. So if you bomb this class, they just like, uh, probably not ready for this yet. <laughs> There's a lot of level three yeah. guys and a lot of guys have been out of trouble that like, like the idea of college, but aren't prepared for the rigor of it. Yeah. And so I, I killed this class, right? Cause I was like, I'm going to take this class. I'm going to get in. So I killed the class and the teacher was like, you should. So she's like, will you take your classes for me? I'm like, yeah. And so I haven't done a lot of schooling, but I've always read a ton in prison. I, I read and I think a lot. Yeah. And I'm interested in subjects that even like uh, other people aren't, you know, and I read about everything. And so, and I retain information really well. So while I hadn't been in school a lot, I felt like I could probably do this. So I took my classes and I crushed them. And they're like, you need to go to school. And so the teacher was like, I'm a, I'm a go to bat for you. And so I turned level two. So I got rid of my little orange tag and I had a, a white tag, but it wasn't level three, but it was level two. So they were like, they were going to make their decisions. They were going to deliberate this. And there's like uh, some people that make these decisions. They're going to, they're going to select who they're going to pick. And they didn't pick me. And it was starting the summer. And I was like, so mad about it. I thought for sure I was going to be in because the teacher made me feel like, like I had an insider. Yeah. And then uh, it didn't go like that. They didn't select me. And then a big fight happened in that summer and a bunch of people from the program, from the uh, college inside program went to the hole. I, not a bunch, like two. And so uh, they, uh, they called me up to education. They said, Hey, we got a spot open. You want it? I said, yes. Nice. And they gave it to me. Dude. That is cool. It seems like they should give more opportunities. If there are people like you that want in, I mean, you just got lucky that some other guys got in a fight. Yeah, because, I mean, all that time, all that time, you just doing that same stuff over and over again. You just needed, you needed something inside you that wanted to do it and somebody to give you a chance. And it took a while, but it finally happened. So that's, yeah. that's cool, man. So now you're, it was kind of like you got to do stuff while you were still in and then the program continued while you're out. So what happened was um, they, they have the professors come in and teach the classes and you have like, you have to get, you have to take certain classes, right? You have to take like math 111 and writing 121 and you have to like take physics and you have to take like all these classes that are. And then you have like some other classes that are elective, right? And so they have like this, excuse me, they have like these professors that choose to come in and teach these classes. And it's the exact same curriculum that they teach at Chemeketa. What they do is that they have, um, because there's the obvious problem is like you need to be able to do research, right? To write papers. Yeah. And they can't let you online. They don't want to let you online. So what they do is they have this like database system. It's like it's an offline database system where they like uploaded like a ton of information into it, like books, newsletters, uh, even Wikipedia is on there. And they just like upload. So if you wanted to like do a research on toenails, right, you could like read from medical journals from like the 70s. You could go you could you could go in. You could you could read more than you ever thought about on toenails, right? And like you could like put your paper together like that. Yeah, you, you put your work cited together like that. So while you may may not be able to go online, there's sufficient information for you. So you didn't go on the internet for like 15 years? 
Oh, well, I went on the internet when I got out, but like my short times out, like that was it. When I was in prison, no internet. You can't be online. No cell phone. No. I mean, that stuff's important because that helps you integrate into society. Dude, you have no clue how far behind I felt getting out. Like, when yeah, you're man, gone this for a must, long time. This must have been insane. Oh, dude, it was not only insane. I couldn't even, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, I when I, I remember when I went into the feds, it was like the flip phone with the pullout antenna. Yeah. That was the jam. And then I got out and they like had these like, those, I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like I was <laughs> overwhelmed. They're like, you gotta oh, you gotta have a Google account. I'm like, what? <sighs> What's a Google? An email? I don't even know what that is, really. That's a bummer, man. They I mean, fucking North Korea can restrict their internet. China can restrict their internet. Why can't they give you guys a different version that you can't search yeah, certain just things. Put firewalls around you. Yeah. So, you know? Um that would be that would be the smart thing to do. Um, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I, I feel like part of it is that the lack of funding, yeah. right? The lack of funding, because in, you know, then, you know, I mean, where are you going with, so you have to have these computers and then, and then they're online and now you're paying for the online services and then like, or tablets, if you're going to get tablets for guys to use to be able to do that sort of thing. And then like, how do you deal with the abuse? Like, it was just like, it's a lot of different, like, so you gotta have people over, you gotta pay people to like, look over this and to yeah. like, install all this system. And it's just the, the funding's poor. The amount of money being delegated towards the prison system for those purposes, not like salary purposes and like, you know, um, expanding the prison purposes, but for like educational purposes is very small. Yeah. That is quite the journey, man. That is quite the journey. And now, how long have you been out? So um, so I got out. I didn't go to school right away. Actually, I got in trouble a little bit. And then um, I got two years of school. I got out. I started using. And then I got in trouble a little bit. And then um, I was gone for a little bit. And so, like, I'm out right now. And um, I've been – I got classes starting at PCC this summer. Nice. In, like, four days. But I did it inpatient drug treatment first and I'm, in, you know, I'm in sober living. And so like, um, you know, I've been putting like, I've, I've really been like kind of trying to build on uh, school on top of my recovery. Yeah, It's making it part of my, um, you know, part of like my, you know, the rebuilding of like my personality and my like my recovery life. Because I've learned from experience um, that if I'm using, I don't care about shit else. Yeah. And so um, uh, school is – it was a tough decision for me, you know, because um, everybody that I know in recovery is just is like, okay, we, we get clean and then we go to work, right? And so the idea that I'm going to go full-time in school, people are like, uh – I'm not sure if that's a good move for you. Right? Yeah. Because they're like, you got to go the traditional way. You got to go to work and then you got to like work with your hands and you got to become a construction worker and you've got to like, or a welder or something like that. And like you want to get involved in school, like that doesn't make sense to us. And so um, I've had to like make some tough decisions and like really like think intently on like what my path is like long term. And when I think about it, from like a long-term perspective, like what do I want out of life in general? Like what do I want to spend my time doing? Like how do I want to like 
Um, what do I want to get involved in? The answer makes sense. Um, you know, and, and so uh, I decided to continue to go to school. Uh, the, but the, the education system in prison is fail as uh, flawed as it was really gave me the an ability to make a decision like this where it was like I already have two years in now because of prison so like if I want to get my bachelor's it's only going to require two more years of me and it's like really it's the one thing that I have that I came out with that was like such a benefit and I didn't even realize at the time really how like beneficial it was going to be for me in my long-term strategy you know but um uh, you know, and, and we haven't spoke a lot about this. And I think like it really like really kind of underscores how important education in prison is. You know, there's like this huge like, you know, if I if you look at prison, like if you were to go there and, you know, which hopefully that never happens. <laughs> but if you were to like just even shake hands with the guys there and over time get to know people. There's like two common denominators really in people incarcerated. One is substance abuse. 99% of dudes there have drug problems. Yeah. The other is no education. There's hardly any college grad or high school graduates there, much less college graduates. There's like people there, most people there, a lot of them are illiterate or can't read or can't do any type of basic math. You see, they mandate that you do GED classes and it literally takes some of these guys years and years and years. And that, I'm not, I don't say that disparagingly against them. I'm saying that to say that like, there's a huge uh, problem with education. And it's not being even addressed by, by prison where a lot of these guys are spending most of their time at, at all. Yeah. Well, I, I think the program that uh, when Michelle was here, she talked about with uh, Freed Minds, I, I think it's a cool thing and hopefully it keeps doing good stuff because what what else are you going to do when you're in there? I mean, you, you might as well be learning in one way or another. And like in your case, getting two years out of the way, now you only got two more and get a bachelor's. That Dude, that's huge. I don't have a bachelor's. I mean- that's just one more step getting you closer to whatever the next thing is. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think on top of the, um, you know, just the, you know, from an um, inspirational standpoint, right? Like one of the things that school really did for me was that it really like pushed my perspectives out past like my little like drug circle towards like the I really realized like how shallow my perspectives were I realized that there's like people and like different cultures and places and lands and I had never even thought about never <laughs> yeah and it made me question like my values and really like like made me like expand my understanding of things past like what I had understood and it and it, it it helps you to like reaffirm like the not just the importance of like of like learning but like the importance of like questioning what you know yeah and um I could I you know I would have never done that and, and as I was in the program I remember I would come home and try to talk to the guys about it and they're like you know what are, you know because it's like it's just it's not it's not communicated it's not communicated one to the other it's got to be experienced yeah and so um. You know, I just, it, it made me, 
it made me understand the importance of of um of the work that I think that they're doing over there at PSU, like trying to bring prison uh, education into the schools and shit like that. And like uh, trying to like, not just like to develop a, a view of uh, restorative justice that is like more humane mm -hmm. and like more geared towards uh, a therapeutic model than a punitive model. Yep. Yep. It's good stuff. Dude, I really appreciate you coming down and telling that whole story. That's some incredible stuff. Yeah. Thank you. No problem, man.